I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. It has been a very long time since we have podcasted together, Catherine Budig. Is hot, does hot minute legit mean it's been a, a while? It's been a hot minute. Why is it hot? Why? I think hot minute. Shouldn't it be a cold minute? Is when, it's like, ooh, it's, it's like frozen in time. It's like now we're de and we're back on the air. A hot minute is like, wow, we've been so active. It, it's, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. And I think that that is what we should discover in season three is we should discover parts of the English language that are completely backward. And we should turn this into more of like a grammar podcast than anything else. Absolutely. It has been a very cold minute. Right. Since we were last behind these microphones, a lot has happened. In this past Ice Age, since we have spoken to you, we have done things like married. We got married. married. Kate Fagan Budig. Married. Kate Fagan Budig. Kate Fagan Budig. Nobody has ever said your name correctly. No. Catherine Budig. Catherine Bud. Oh, that was correct. Budig. 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 I've never seen a, a name that is so simple when you look at it. Just Five confound people. Innocent Just letters. confound everyone who tries to say it. And so we legally have not hyphenated our names, but it is fun to call Kate Fagan Budig. Kate Budig Fagan, I prefer, because you are more important than I am. Oh, okay. You're my, my number one. <laughs> Second to my Peloton. Uh, and that is <laughs> the other, according to Kate, major thing that's happened since we have no, talked no, no. to you. Look, it's very important that we discuss it, the Peloton, because it's it's like being vegan. You have to talk about it. It's a cliche at this point, and I personally love being a cliche. But the real other major thing is that I left my job. I left my job so that I could not work and not do anything. And <laughs> I'm doing Peloton it. all day <laughs> long. Okay, but actually, we do want to have some structure to this episode because that's what the people expect from us. I think they come here for structure. And speaking and of structure, unfortunately, or fortunately, depends on your personality type, season three will not be structured in the same way that season one and two have been structured because it turns out that producing and developing and delivering a podcast once a week. It's a lot. That, especially that's when, way beyond the not working that Kate is at. It's right honestly now. when I don't have a job, like where am I, how am I supposed to make time for that? You know, <laughs> I just, I don't have the time in the day to produce nonstop podcasts. No, but it was a decision you and I came to because we, we didn't want to necessarily be like every Wednesday we have to have one because even if we didn't necessarily no empty promises, We'd, we like to deliver on our promises, and we wanted to have cold minutes in between our podcasts. There you no, go. But we wanted to make sure that the ones we were dropping was because we had something to say. Yes. Or we had an interview we, that we were really excited about, and that doesn't mean that we haven't been excited about all the people that we've interviewed, but we realized that we did a lot of work ahead of time to like schedule all of those to make sure we could drop them every week. And this time, we want to make sure that the ones we drop, you know you're getting quality. Quality. <laughs> no podcasts about clementines. <laughs> what? Do you not like clementines? I'm looking at our big bowl of clementines right now, and I want to eat one, but I don't think it would be a very interesting topic. That's and that's why we're not going to do it because we're here for quality. And See? you eating a clementine on air is not that interesting. But Ashi eating a clementine on air, that little dickhead. She's a dickhead. <laughs> and, and also because we are all about structure or blowing through structure, <laughs> we should tell you. Our guest About today guest. on season three, episode one of Free Cookies. We have an interview that we recorded a couple weeks ago with Marianne Williamson. Now I'm going to let 
Catherine tell you a little bit about like the nuts and bolts of her bio, and then we'll get into the conversation we had with her and why we brought her on. Right. So uh, many of the the people from my crew are probably very excited to hear from Marianne, but if you've never heard of her before, she is an American spiritual teacher. She is an author, a lecturer, an entrepreneur, and an activist. And to give you an idea of the breadth of her work, she's written 13 books and... God, four of those were New York Times number one bestsellers. But most importantly... She does Peloton. <laughs> sweet baby Jesus. Um, most importantly, she is now running for the Democratic nominee for the President of the United States of America. Yeah. And so we interviewed her when she was in Charleston on an early campaign early tour. stop. Yeah. Because she sees, as she articulates, she sees South Carolina as almost like a swing state in this upcoming election. I mean, we did just nominate out of Charleston a Charleston Democratic is, House of Representatives. Little itty bitty drop of blue Joe Cunningham, and a very out. big sea of red. Yeah, we're yep. going to try to bring you Joe Cunningham this season, by the way. So we had a really awesome conversation with Marianne Williamson. And those of you who might be skeptical about her bid for the presidential nominee, I think you stick around because she has a lot of... We were too at the beginning. Yeah, a really articulate points about our history, campaign promises she wants to make, what the cornerstone pieces of her campaign will be. I do think that we should, before we just play the interview, we should dissect one piece of the interview that I think <laughs> we, we still have question marks about. We tried to push back on this one thing. Let me, let me, let me lay it out before you jump into your okay. example. Yep. Yep. Go for it. Is this, so with Marianne, the one place where we were concerned was her belief that the country is ready to talk about spirituality and mindfulness in the ways that she's talking about them. With the verbiage. And having this kind of core of wellness and mindfulness be at the center of her campaign. And I had question marks about a lot of like friends I grew up with and people in my life who, when they hear the term mindfulness, it's almost equated with like urban elite and all of these um, shutdown like buzzwords that people hear, like privilege, you know, and they don't actually respond well to them. And I think mindfulness is one of those words and this concept that everyone's ready for mindfulness. We tried to push back on that issue, but, you know, at, at some point you throw enough questions out there and you're like, but what about this? What about this? You just have to let it go. And I know you tried to set one in, in this particular conversation, you tried to give one example that you wanted to delete it out because you were so mad at yourself. Yeah, I was really mad at myself because I think if I were to describe Marianne in one sentence, I would say she's fierce and genius. Yeah. And um, I, I think maybe some, some of the more genius people are to be feared. I mean, she is a teeny tiny, my height, five foot two powerhouse of a human. And I think in many ways, she's obviously not a yoga teacher, but I do think of her as a senior teacher to me as we come from similar, you know, umbrella worlds of wellness or spirituality. So whenever I'm around someone who I think is senior to me, well, in general, but specifically within my world, I want to be the student. I want to be respectful. You know, I, I don't want to cross them. And I just gave her a specific instance that actually happened to me. And my takeaway from that, and you will hear it, I'm not going to even tell you what it was, because I'm sure you pointed out where... She basically was like, do you really think that's a good example? You really think that's what it was like? I'm like, well, yeah, I was kind of there. So, yes. But I didn't, didn't say, say that. that. Okay. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. That's a really bad example. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I had time to really sit in my little mud pit 
after that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What happened? I don't was know. I was thinking I was a like a metaphorical in, mud pit. You yeah, were sitting I was in, in my spiritual pig pen afterwards. <laughs> and I was like, why won't someone throw me some food and make me feel better? Um, I, yeah. Anyway, we're just going to let go of that one. So I, I was just trying to be respectful. And in that moment was like, wow, this is not really the time to be, it's not a lack of respect. It's yep. just a, no, this is actually what happened to me. And you need to, validate my experience and, and B with something as important as this upcoming presidential election like you you gotta throw punches because not obviously metaphorical punches because or be ready to respond to the punches rather y- yeah like yeah. I just mean when people jab and they're like well what about this what about this I mean everyone she has to approach everyone like you are a potential vote yes and that person is gonna toss things out what do you think about this what do you think about this testing whether or not her answers and her perspective is one that you want to move forward with in the voting process. And so I think regardless of that one piece, right? Like yes. This, Overall, she has our support. Yes. We are fascinated by her. Yep. We don't know if we'll vote for her yet, but she has our support because her message is absolutely needed, imperative in the world that we're in right now. And regardless of whether she gets the nominee or not, she's a fascinating woman with uh, a fantastic diagnostic of what our country is experiencing right now and potentially the cure. Yeah, and the reason we bring up kind of that question mark that we just discussed was simply because we want you guys as listeners, as you listen to this interview, we want to know if we're flawed in how we're diagnosing the American like landscape as well and like where you guys come down on what you think about what she has to say and where her campaign is at right now. Yeah. So, so this is a really fascinating one. We look forward to you listening we look it. forward we to look forward your to listening. Your ears opening. To we these look words. forward to your feedback. <laughs> oh, it's been a while. We'll this get sharper, you guys. Marianne Williamson, everybody. <laughs> Riding a Peloton. <laughs> Stop. Stop. We are sitting here in the flesh with Marianne Williamson. So we're just going to dive right in. I read something recently that you <clears throat> cringe at being called a new age author or speaker. Well, no, I don't cringe at being called a new age author or speaker. The, the term new age has been used and continues to be used to minimize somebody's work, I think. Mm-hmm. And that has certainly been my experience over 30 years. At this point, I don't cringe because after 30 years, you just kind of accept it. I, I, it's more I roll my eyes now. Sure. <clears throat> but it is it's a, a serious marginalization technique. I mean, as soon as you say New Age, uh, many serious people assume intellectually lightweight, uh, kind of woo-woo and silliness. Um, and yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. Um, and has, on a professional level, over the years, uh, it's hurt me uh, professionally, you know, commercially, like, oh, she's not a deep thinker. Mm-hmm. So on the level not only of my career but also my ego, you know, which is something to just burn through. But, um, yes. So uh, how we <coughs> love to start the show with all of our guests, and everyone's just heard your bio, your professional bio, But with, I don't know, I don't always, we don't always feel the same way about our bio, about how we are currently. So how would you describe to the listeners 
and non-professional bio terminology well, who you are I'm right now. I'm an author. I'm a speaker. I talk about universal spiritual themes. I've been called a spiritual leader, although, you know, it's like in the East, a guru doesn't call themselves a guru. Mm-hmm. For me to say I am a spiritual leader feels a little grandiose. But I feel when other people call me that, it sounds accurate. Um, <clears throat> I'm not a minister or a priest or a rabbi. I don't work within the field of uh, an organized, institutionalized religion. But the work that I do is the work of, of spiritual teacher, counselor, etc. When I started my career, much of what I talk about was considered fringe. Mm-hmm. But that was 35 years ago. Today, if you don't know this conversation, you're fringe. The world has changed. It, it's, a, it's a new century. The idea that consciousness is primary and that in order to change your life, you need to address causal issues on the inside, in the way you think, because until you do nothing will permanently change on the outside. That's not woo-woo. That's, that's the law of consciousness. The idea <clears throat> that the world is not a machine, that it is a product of thoughts, that's not woo-woo. That's simply an understanding of consciousness. We're more in keeping with uh, quantum physics than is old think. So there's a whole paradigm, a way of looking at the world that's very rationalistic, very mechanistic, that's, that's a 20th century relic. And more and more people, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a man yesterday, and he's a, a journalist. And he was asking me my feelings about the military and international relations. And he said, well, I've been a service member <clears throat> I've been, I don't know what he was in. He was clearly, you know, in the armed forces. He said, how would people in the armed forces, he said, I know a lot of people in the armed forces who would find, would turn off to you because they would hear your conversation about waging peace and think that it wasn't serious enough. And I said, I quoted George Bush's uh, defense secretary who said we must wage peace. And I quoted James Mattis, who was Trump's, Secretary of Defense, who said, if you don't fully fund the State Department, I will have to buy more ammunition. And the journalist then said to me, well, I used to be someone. Oh, and I said to him, and I said, also, people I know in the military. I know in the military say this, and I talked further. Then he said, well, it's true. I would have discounted all of this, except a year ago, I began to learn about mindfulness. And so since I learned about mindfulness, I understand that this stuff is real and true. I said, well, what makes you think other people in the armed forces haven't? See, everybody at this time who tends to awaken to issues of higher consciousness have this idea that, well, I understand, but how you can convince people over there? For instance, we're in South Carolina. I know people in New York and LA who would say, well, I understand, but how are you gonna convince people in South Carolina? I said, well, I go to South Carolina, and I meet just as many people there. It's, it, this is a, a cultural wave, which is appropriate to the 21st century. The 21st century mind is different than the 20th century mind. So this, this establishment uh, perspective and worldview that is so 
mechanistic and externalized and overly secularized, thinks of itself as the majority viewpoint, but it's dwindling. And so I don't think of this as anti-establishment or counterculture. This is the new establishment. This mm-hmm. is the world today, and that's how it should be. <clears throat> Unfortunately, politics is an area that is still stuck in old think, and that is to our detriment, detriment because new thinking is the path to our salvation and the save, you know, saving the human race. Uh, yeah, that, that's definitely a question that we had for you is this concept with the voters of spirituality versus religion. <coughs> and we had the privilege of hearing you, no worries. <laughs> we had the privilege of hearing you in Charleston last night at Still Studio, which is a meditation studio. And as a yoga teacher, I might be projecting, but to see you in that space, you appeared to me very natural and like you were home. And uh, I've experienced that as a yoga teacher as well. When I'm teaching in front of a group in a yoga studio, I I feel like we're already simpatico and it's easy to pass these ideas together. But then if I'm teaching at a university or somewhere that yoga might not be as common ground, I definitely have to take it to the next level to show people like, oh, it's not a religion. It's not this maybe media concept that you've seen. And so we both wonder in your campaign, as spirituality is such a a huge stone, a a groundstone of what you're doing, how to the common American voter do you articulate the difference between spirituality and religion for someone who might have preconceived notions? But see, you're doing what I just said I don't think needs to be done anymore. For instance, when you said you have to explain to people at a university, do you really have to explain to people at a university anymore that yoga is not a religion? University might not have been the prime example. (laughs) At this point, people get that. Uh, I think people are smart. Mm -hmm. So the religion and spirituality thing, we do have in the United States separation of church and state, which is one of our most enlightened aspects of our Constitution. But I think we want to be clear what that is and what it isn't. It's it's a double, double thing. First of all, separation of church and state protects the government from interference by religious authorities. For instance, let's say you're in a nation like Iran. The government can make a law, but if the Ayatollahs want to come in and say, strike it down, you can't pass that law, or you have to pass another law, they can. Not in the United States. No minister or priest or rabbi or imam or mufti or monk can walk into the halls of Congress and say, you're not going to pass that law, you have to pass that one. The government has complete protection. At the same time, religious practice and non-religious practice has protection from government interference. So if you're doing a yoga class or I was teaching a course on A Course in Miracles, no policeman, no governmental authority could come in and say, break it up because this practice isn't on our official list. Any religion or no religion, completely, uh, completely protected. You know, I was in a European country, and I'm not even going to say which European country it was, where I had been traveling with a group of people and we were on a, we were at a religious, we were at a site, a historical site, and we all raised, we started meditating. And somebody came out and told us we couldn't meditate there. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that couldn't happen here. So that's, that's, that's what it means. It had nothing to do, the founders were not trying to suppress religious practice. They were trying to protect religious practice. Because, you know, when we were kids, we learned about how people came here for religious freedom. So 
the spiritual and moral conversation about what makes life good, what makes life ethical, what it means to be a good person, what it means to live in harmony with nature, what it means to live in harmony with <clears throat> the laws of the universe, that's not doctrine. That's not dogma. If you don't have that, no human life can be fulfilled. It cannot, no human life can reach its highest creative possibility that does not include such questioning. And no society can reach its highest self-actualization without including such questioning. Our Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal. That's a philosophical concept. And it's a spiritual concept. All men are created equal. It doesn't even say all men are equal. It says all men are created equal. And then it uses the word God. It says God gave all men unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and governments are instituted to secure those rights. So notice what it's saying. It's positing the spiritual, which is that God created it, and government's right is to secure it. So government's right is to align with it in terms of our material functioning. So the founders <clears throat> were not leaving moral and spiritual and, and, and um, philosophical consideration out of our founding, and we should not leave it out of our um, decision-making and consideration how to foster our democracy and further it. The one thing that I loved about listening to you last night was that I felt like you weren't going to, you didn't brush past saying things. You were naming things that maybe we have some low-level harm <coughs> are happening in this country, and you were like, I'm just going to name it. I'm going to name the problem. And so I think when it comes to this question that I think over the last five minutes we've been somewhat discussing, which is, yes, we can sit in the workshop in Charleston where it's a, a privileged few who like come and partake in certain areas of the South, right? And then there's a more of a wide swath of ground here where maybe these conversations aren't as uh, prevalent as they are in like the city and in the urban areas. I think there really still is a question because I heard you say like, consciousness and these discussions of spirituality, I think, are more widespread than we think. And maybe that's true, but I think there is a question in there about, like, just average American who I know, I mean, these are, like, friends of mine in upstate New York, uh, more of a rural area, family, <coughs> would say, the second they hear consciousness and harmony with the universe, it doesn't feel like them. And that there's still a resistance to that, I think. And I think we'd be, I think we'd be lying if we said that there wasn't a a large part of America that is resistant to these discussions. I want to know someone who is considering voting for you and loved what you had to say. Like, is there any amendment to kind of how you speak to different parts of the country based on what you think their understanding might be of these consciousness conversations? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I use the phrase laws of the universe here with you. Right. You didn't hear me. I wouldn't use that phrase in a political talk probably anywhere with any group. Um, but we're a big country, and people think differently. That's a good thing. That's mm -hmm. not a bad thing. But we all have no, no socioeconomic group, no city versus rural, no um, particular religion versus more non-denominational spirituality, has a m monopoly on values. I, I, nobody, you know, that's the, I'm speaking values what it means to be an American. Somebody said to me, 
uh, are you talking just to the consciousness movement? I said, no, I'm talking to the conscious in all of us. It's arrogant. It's, it's a, a form of spiritual superiority to think, well, we understand truth, but how do you talk to people who don't? I don't see it that way. Um, you know, truth is that you take care of your kids. Truth is that you realize <clears throat> equality matters. Truth is that you realize all people should have a fair shot. Truth is that you realize that we have an important function as citizens of the most powerful nation in the world. Truth is that you realize um, citizenship brings responsibilities as well as rights. Truth is that we have a moral responsibility to take care of the earth. Truth is that we, we, we need to do everything possible to make it to give people an opportunity to thrive. Those are moral values. All this other stuff is almost glaze, and everybody has different glaze. And I want you to also remember, three million more people voted for Hillary Clinton than for Donald Trump. So I think we need to worry less about talking to people who do not see the world we do. We need to think more about talking to people who do see the world the way we do, making sure that they become involved and that they vote. You named, uh, you named a few, I would say, priorities there, right? Like we have to care about the environment. We have to care about all of, what would you say at this point are the top three things that you would be running on? Well, first of all, I think, you know, when you look at something like uh, segregation, slavery, oppression of women. These are specific institutionalized examples of evil. Evil today is a mindset and it doesn't pose in a way that makes it so obvious that it's wrong. And that is a mindset that says market forces performing with no regulation on, its, on their ability to create short-term profit for corporate stockholders should be the bottom line in our society. It should be the bottom line so that oil companies, chemical companies, big pharma, agribusiness, health insurance companies, um, military contractors, their making money should come before whether something's healthy, should come before whether or not something's safe, should come before whether or not something is responsible behavior towards children, towards the earth, towards other people of the world, should come before any interest in peace and even economic vibrancy in the future. This is a mindset that poses as economic good. It poses <clears throat> as smart economics, even though for 40 years, the evidence is clear. This does not do anything to build economic vibrancy. Here in South Carolina, turning down Medicaid expansion. Mm -hmm. it's, all it does is hurt people. And yet, Americans who do value goodness have been so propagandized by such billions of dollars put into this kind of... of, of, of gaslighting, that now people are finally awakening to the realization that <clears throat> if an individual has no ethics and an individual has no 
morals and an individual has no concern about anything other than it themselves, that's, soci- that's a sociopath. So an economic system which posits no moral responsibility to people, to anything, all that matters is that <clears throat> we make money, that then our stockholders get richer. It's not, it, it, it's, it's sociopathic. It's a sociopathic economic system. So underneath, whether, whether you're talking about the environment, or you're talking about children, or you're talking about national security, all these issues where we're challenged have an underlying issue, which is that this economic system, which posits that short-term profit maximization should be the organizing principle for our society, and particularly at a time when our government has become, <clears throat> since a Citizens United Supreme Court decision has allowed for just unlimited corporate spending in our campaigns, we now have a, uh, we have a government that is basically handmaiden. So Declaration of Independence says governments are instituted to secure our rights. Our government, <clears throat> as often as not now, acts as an agency to secure the right of these multinational corporations who make a profit more than it acts as an agency to secure our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The American people need to understand this because it's not enough for just a politician to understand it and say, I'll go to Washington and fight for you. Also, that's naive because these forces are so huge. Mm -hmm. You have to understand it, and you have to understand it, and you have to, we all have to understand it. It's not enough, you know, this idea of, politics as spectator sport and a political class and they're going to handle it. That's how we got here. We need <clears throat> an awakening of the American mind because the American, we're, we're decent people, no less than anyone else. And when we see we're being messed with, we don't take it. The problem is we don't, too many people don't see we're being messed with. So I, I think of myself as I know from when you said earlier we were naming things because in the world of personal transformation, which has been my career for 35 years, you're going to sit in front of me, we're going to have a, have a session. What's going on? And if you give me anything other than what's it, I'll ask you again, what's really going on? Mm-hmm. Well, what'd you do? And so when he said that, what'd you do? And you wouldn't be sitting with me unless you trusted that this was a sacred space to hold that. And I'd say, and then what'd you say? So when, he, so when you said that, he probably cut the deal, right? And you say, yeah. So we'd go deep. We'd talk about what really happened. So America, will, these are very serious times, and we will not get through this mess, these challenges, this crisis in our democracy without the average person understanding, because the tentacles of this mindset are everywhere. They're local. They're state. They're not just federal. So it's not enough for somebody in Washington to get it. <clears throat> People have to get it everywhere. We have to get to the point where citizenship is simply a dimension of what we all know is, is being, living a meaningful life. Now, within that, there are specific issues. Millions of American children living in chronic trauma. Why? For the very reason I said, because that's not where we're spending our money. The fact that in, we're not really moving forward with the deepest level of racial reconciliation. Why? Because of the money. That you know is being spent elsewhere. We don't really have a national security agenda 
that fosters peace. Why? Because of the money, it has more to do with the bottom line of military contractors. We spend more on preparedness for war. I'm not saying that, that's, that we don't need a fully prepared military, and I respect the military. My critique here is not of the military, it's of civilian leadership decisions, which often have less to do with creating peace on Earth and more to do with, it, with profits for military contractors. That's what I want to, not only, you know, if you have, a, as we have now, a, an environmental protection agency that's led by oil company executives and chemical company lobbyists, that's the opposite of having an environment, a world-class environmentalist as head of your EPA. I, I, I would want to have a massive realignment of investment in the direction of America's children. If you want to take care of your economy 10 years from now, take care of your 10-year-olds today. So I, FDR said that the primary role of the president is moral leadership. Not, not The administrative aspects are secondary. We need a visionary. We need someone who really understands what's going on here and can articulate what's going on here. To the, to the, I, I have worked with presidents and I've worked with prisoners. I've danced at palaces and I've held the heads of the dying. You know... That place in us where we're smart, that natural common sense intelligence, it's the same in all of us. But we don't. But the political system doesn't talk to that part of us, and we have started turning off and disengaging. So we all have to take responsibility. But if you keep electing people who are part of an establishment separation from what's true, so. What I've found fascinating is that when you're in person with you, there's like there's, <clears throat> these ideas are true and make sense and they represent how so many of us see the world. When running for president, a huge piece of how the masses will see you who might not get the opportunity to sit in front of you will be through the media. And we've got a media system that the rewards of that media system are clicks and attention, which doesn't necessarily mean that the media is then putting out what's interesting in always the depth of what we need as humans. It's a different economic system that rewards, as you know, clicks and outrage and a lot of those different things. When you think of how you need to project yourself through the media, which has that economic motivation, what, what is your vision for how to tackle that? Well, I was, it, it, there are individuals within the media. So, for instance, when I was interviewed recently on CNN, John Berman, I thought, was very fair and, and very generous to me, actually. I was very grateful for that interview. Um, MSNBC, on the other hand, still just ignoring me. Uh, they'll talk about who's running in 2020, and we'll mention people who haven't even, uh, haven't even announced an exploratory, and they'll not mention me. But you know what? It's a process. That won't be, if, if I continue to get support and I continue to exist, that won't last forever. So it, it works both ways. You never know where the miracle is going to come from. My career would never have uh, taken off the way it did had Oprah Winfrey not had me on. You never know, you know, and I have some major media <clears throat> that has uh, interviewed me. Uh, the articles haven't come out yet, mm -hmm. but... You know, I mean, I was reading an article this morning in, uh, in South Carolina. Uh, a coverage of my talk, one of my talks yesterday, was eminently fair. Um, I, I'm, you know, what do they say? First they ignore you, 
then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. We're women. Uh, we're used to this. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, that's the way they are. But, you know, somebody said to me the other day, talking about this and the establishment, the political establishment, they said, do you feel welcome? I said, no, but I feel inevitable. Mm. I mean, I think I'm speaking to something that's happening. And I don't think it's some small group. I'm speaking to, to, to the American and all of us, liberal, conservative. Um, I know there is an inherent reason for this. I feel it in my gut. I feel it in my heart. And I feel that enough people are nodding their heads to, to affirm that for me. And my career affirms it for me. I mean, I've... The type of people, like I said, this is, this is a new day. Everybody's doing yoga. Everybody's reading mindfulness. I mean, what are we talking about? This is a projection onto us that we haven't, like, it's not a deeper river of influence than it is. What did you, somebody said, you, you, somebody at, your, at the event yesterday said, yoga is a $9 billion industry. That's crazy. I mean, we're, we're, this is the new culture. But it was in western Tennessee uh, last week, <clears throat> speaking at UT Martin, and they were reflecting back to me like, what do you mean I meditate and I try to think of nothing? How would I do that? And there was like all this question of like, so do I have to do? So there are these places where it hasn't penetrated, but that's an, I mean we've already oh, no, talked no, about no, that. But no, okay. no, no, I think there's a more, no, you're not going to win everybody, and you're not going to win there every state. Yeah. But I have to share an the image. Not going blue, so it's almost. Well, like... hey, maybe. <laughs> I have to share an image that has been percolating in my mind this entire conversation, and I'm not a cartoonist, but I think I can see your New Yorker cartoons that are going to start happening. Okay, which tell will be me. Very exciting, I, or, or embarrassing. Well, depending. both. It'll yeah. be everything, right? But I. I <laughs> see this New Yorker cartoon of you standing over D.C. with a big-ass Band-Aid that you're just like, ripping off of that city. I see you being this political Band-Aid ripper, ripping that just temporary crap that has been put on top of this unconscious conversation, and you just whoosh, taking it off. New That's, Yorker cartoons are usually ironic. I will but write I like them, and I will cartoon. tell them that they need to do this, but I really see you being the lifter of what has been blocking us from healing and allowing us to, to grow, which leads me to the question, which I can't believe we haven't asked this yet, the impetus of you the, wanting to run for president, which I think just from this conversation, like we know all the things that you want to do, but was this always inside of you? Was there an aha moment? And what's your, what's your I'm asking the Obama questions it's the very very deep folded um and what's your big picture you know like I, I, let's just start with impetus <coughs> I'm getting ahead of myself I got very excited <laughs> I think I always did have a thing about running for office yeah but that was an itch that I scratched when I ran for congress four years ago so after that experience I thought that was done I thought I scratched that itch did it for those of you, who, for those of people who don't know how that went, will you just give me a quick synopsis <coughs> of how I, that went? I ran for Congress four years ago. I came in fourth out of 16 in a jungle primary. Um, you know, Barack Obama ran for Congress and got crushed, you know, his mm -hmm. first time out. That's kind of, you know, it's akin to a starter marriage that a lot of people have, you know. Uh, I tried. I failed. But I like to think I failed well, as Ray Dalio says. I learned 
I think you learn as much from failures from success in life. And went on with my life. And certainly did not expect to be doing that again. And thought that any doors that might have opened from that, that just wasn't the trajectory my life was going to take. Your life takes different trajectories. None are inherently better than others as long as they're all part of <clears throat> valuable contribution and self-actualization and so forth. And then about a year and a half ago, this emerged in my mind. And it took me about a year and a half. There was nothing impulsive about this decision. A year and a half of serious processing, including processing, you know, like my daughter said to me at the time, Mommy, why do you need this at this time of your life? Inevitable humiliation, inevitable embarrassment, inevitable mean-spiritedness, inevitable lies, inevitable smear, inevitable bad pictures. I mean, everything <clears throat> that could ruin your day. But even that's a spiritual growth opportunity, isn't it? And the more I processed, the more I talked to people I respect, the more I talked to people who I know love me, the more I checked out every aspect of what this means, it was like Johnny Appleseed dropping seeds in front of me to the point where I knew it's just been a yes in my heart. And even though there are stresses even now, how am I going to afford this? The traditional candidates have millions of dollars in their coffers um, that they come in with. <clears throat> I don't have anything even close to that. How am I going to pay for this? But I feel I'm where I'm supposed to be. I feel sitting here with you talking about these things is where I'm supposed to be. I feel being in South Carolina this week is where I'm supposed to be. I feel talking about these things is what I'm supposed to do. And somebody, I read somewhere a phrase, I don't know who first said it, I think it's a brilliant phrase, fully invested in an effort, but unattached to the results. I'm fully invested in this effort. My job is to articulate a vision for the United States. <clears throat> My job is to articulate what I believe is the path out of our current dysfunction. That's my job, your job. I'm not a South Carolina voter. I'm not a New Hampshire voter. I'm not an Iowa voter, and I'm not a Nevada voter. That's your job to decide whether this option is one that you say, yeah, I want that one. My job is to make sure you have the option. And then the rest is not only in God's hands, it's in your hands. And that's how it should be in a democracy. We haven't touched on, or we did briefly, something that in listening to you last night felt like it was a, a cornerstone of your campaign, and that is reparations. Yeah. I said groundstone <coughs> earlier, by the way. I don't, I don't know if you know caught if that. She messes up idioms all, all the time. idioms. So what did you say? I, I, I said the groundstone earlier. I was, I was searching for the word cornerstone. I said like groundstone. I don't know what a groundstone It's is, grounding, anyway. okay? It's a foundation. That sounds like, um, <laughs> like you ground the flower yeah. or something. <laughs> but you were searching for cornerstone, okay, and we've thanks. found that word now. Yep. yep. This concept of reparations, can you articulate for us and our listeners what that means and how you envision that? I don't think the average American is a racist. I really don't at all, actually. 
but I do believe the average American is undereducated about the history of race in the United States, particularly since the Civil War. At the end of the Civil War, there were about four million slaves, we think. Um, at the time, 40 acres and a mule was promised to every family of four. Now, this is an interesting thing about history because <clears throat> I think if Abraham Lincoln had lived, things would have been different. He was assassinated shortly after the surrender at Appomattox. And he said in his second inaugural, with malice towards none, with charity for all. And I think that his compassion for both the North and the South was so profound that things would have unfolded differently. As it was, Tecumseh Sherman, General Tecumseh Sherman, promised to every family of four former slaves this 40 acres and a mule. Now think about it. If you were a slave, you definitely had skill. You were put to work every day. So you're freed, and then the question becomes, what are you freed to? You have to make a living. So that 40 acres and a mule would have meant <clears throat> you could start your own farm. But then this land was, of course, taken from former plantation owners and slave owners whose revenge and hatred and sense of humiliation having lost the war was very great. So after the federal troops left in 1877, which is, what, 12 years after the end of the war, Southern legislatures passed what were called black code laws. And I know that I'm, I'm in South Carolina, so in South Carolina, South Carolinians do know this history. But this is a history that <clears throat> most Americans do not know well. That what, what happened at that time was the institutionalization of the certainty that former slaves and that former <clears throat> slave population would experience subpar economic, social, and political opportunities. And it was violently enforced. Not only the black code laws, the lynchings, Ku Klux Klan, so that it became full-on institutionalization of white supremacy and segregation. And what I think we have to, you know, you heard me say yesterday, we need to <clears throat> take our consideration of political issues beyond just something over the neck. We need to expand into a whole person understanding. That lasted for 100 years. So two and a half centuries of slavery was followed by 100 years of, it was still violent. It was still violent. If I'm hunting you down to hang you from a tree, it's still violent. That was not fundamentally addressed till Martin Luther King <clears throat> and the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. What that ended was certain kinds of discrimination in public places and so forth, and then the next year in 1965, the Voting Rights Act. But the economic reconciliation, was a level playing field was never, was never created. And the point of reparations is that not only was a level playing field, so that wasn't even addressed till 1965. And I don't want to minimize the efforts of our ancestors, black or white, and the successes that have been made. A lot of political uh, equality and equity has been created, social political equity, but economic, no. Mm -hmm. So there's not a level playing field. And <clears throat> as a consequence, when I talk about these millions of American children living in these domestic war zones, not all of them are children of color, but many of them, mm -hmm. if not the majority of them. So Germany has paid reparations, has paid $89 billion to Jewish organizations since World War II. Now, they can't make the Holocaust not have happened. But reparations by the 20th century, just what you do. You know, by the 20th century, if, if I steal money from you and then I say, 
I'm so sorry. You would say to me, thank you. And I'd like the money back. <laughs> I, I don't just say, I'm so sorry I stole that money. No, no, no. And give me the money back. Now, we can't. I, I'm not one of those people that believes, you know, dollar for dollar. I mean, how do you even quantify or measure, uh, you know, that two and a half centuries of slavery in terms of its monetary contribution? However, we can, you know, in, in our community, there's a lot of talk about small random acts of kindness. I think we need some huge strategized acts of doing the right thing can't make slavery not have happened, but you can reconcile. And we have legacies of slavery, mass incarceration, racial disparity in sentencing, voter suppression efforts. We, it's time to do the next big thing. We got time for one more one question? More? Sure, yeah. Um, you okay? I do, may, I, may I yes. say yes, one more thing? <clears throat> when I explain what I just explained, in Iowa, one of America's whitest states, and New Hampshire, one of America's whitest states, I get applause every time. Yeah. And that speaks to the dignity and decency of the American people. It, uh, you, I have a question, but do you want to have one too? Oh, no, I was me? just going to say that yeah. hearing you speak this way, it's refreshing and also simultaneously depressing that where our country is, why is this not something that we have done years yeah, ago? Yeah. Well, it's but just, we have, well, first of all, when you're talking about something as unbelievably deep and heinous as two and a half centuries of, of slavery. It's like, think of any relationship that you have. <clears throat> and some relationships are difficult, and it takes time to process them. Sure. <laughs> now you talk about millions of people involved. It's, and, 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 and what happened in our country was that in the 1960s, we had the Civil Rights Act and we had the Voting Rights Act. What happened after that, however, was in 1968, uh, Richard Nixon was elected president. Richard Nixon had a domestic advisor who later became a senator from New York named Daniel po uh, Patrick Moynihan. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan f uh, uh, coined a very cold phrase. And that phrase is benign neglect. Hmm. And his advice to Nixon, which Nixon took, was there's been so much tumult in the 60s. It's time for a no drama, which is pretty funny because <laughs> Watergate was certainly drama. <laughs> but it's time, enough with the racial stuff, enough with the civil rights movement. Now let's move into a period where we're not going to harm you, but we're not going to really try to help you either. So that became the new reality. But, you know, these things happen over centuries. So the civil rights movement was in the 60s. That's all I'm simply saying. Okay, it's been 60 years. Time for the next step. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <clears throat> Inspired by your truth and transparency, I would say as a South Carolina voter, mm -hmm. even if I feel that you are naming all the things our country needs, I also then look at the big picture of, but can she win? Can she get that Democratic nomination? So my question to you is, like, what is the game plan for, for voters like me who it's like, you may be saying everything I want to hear and wish I could just put you in a position of power, but then there's the political gain that we all have to... So my question play. to you, are you a Democrat? Yes. Okay. So is your question, can I win the nomination or can I defeat Trump? The question is like, and I'm not talking about my eventual vote, right? I'm talking about putting money behind your campaign. Okay. Putting the kind of energy that I think <clears throat> you're asking of people to no longer be dormant in uh -huh. what they do politically. Okay. If I want to put money behind your campaign right. and I want to support your campaign, I also want to know... That there's this... Yeah, people like to bet on a winner. Yeah. 
okay. but I don't want to be that person. But it's still <laughs> conscious. Yeah, but you are actually. So, so, let, so, so let's talk about that for a moment. There are Democrats who just said, "We got to beat Trump. We got to beat Trump. We got to beat Trump." And I understand the anger. I, I feel it. I, I'm as appalled by many of the policies of this presidency of this as, as anybody else. But it is very naive to think two things are very naive. Number one, it's very naive to think if we just beat Trump, then the situation's handled. Because there are so many lined up behind him. It, they'll be back in 22. They'll be back in 24. But also it's naive to think that this traditional strategy, brute force, cowboy thing, can defeat him. That is naive. That is naive as to the nature of the opponent here. The opponent is a primal place of fear. You cannot defeat that. The only way to defeat dog whistles is to drown it out with angel voices. The only way to defeat that is to inspire a song of love. Only a song of love can defeat a song of fear. If you think traditional political strategy is enough to defeat that, then you're not very, not you personally, are not very sophisticated in your understanding of what's going on here. All Democrats are going to definitely vote for the Democratic candidate. That's not a question, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But the issue is, and when if you look at what happened, Democrats did not lose because of the people who voted for Trump. Democrats lost because of the Democrat, all the Democrats who didn't vote and all the Democrats who voted for the third, third party. <clears throat> now, what we have to do is inspire a compelling vision of America. Because much, everything I said today, neither liberal nor conservative. The problem, the opponent here is not conservatism. The opponent is this authoritarian corporatism, which is no more conservative than it is liberal. If, we, if you shame people, shame is an act of violence. Shame is an act of emotional violence. If all we do is talk about how bad Trump is, then people who voted for him, who we would hope would vote differently next time, will feel made wrong. Mm -hmm. Is that going to make them vote for you? I mean, can we be sophisticated psychologically and emotionally here? Our crowd should be the first to know, you know, there's a limit to how much that model would work. Mm -hmm. So I am the practical one. So right, we got to wrap it up. Yeah. So Marianne, please tell all, all the listeners where they can find you. And also at this point in your campaign, what is the most useful thing for people who want to support you to do right now? <clears throat> if people go to my website, which is at Marianne2020.com, or you can get there, Marianne Williamson for president or whatever. But I think Marianne2020.com, I know, gets you there. I hope that this campaign will inspire deep thinking. I have many issues. I hope you'll read through the issues, think about them. I would love to think that this campaign inspires people to read up American history. We're having citizen calls. If you are in South Carolina or New Hampshire, uh, uh, Iowa or Nevada, get involved. Sign up as a volunteer. Um, put it on your Facebook page. Put it on your Twitter. Put it on your Instagram Tag me at Mar Williamson. Everybody, if you have a if you have a social media account, you you have a platform mm -hmm. in America today, mm -hmm. and there's nothing like people talking, and of course to realize that without the financial resources, this cannot happen and it cannot continue. And I think for many people, I think many people have not converted their thinking 
into the cultural habit of supporting political campaigns. <clears throat> Many people who have the money routinely order things online, really underestimate perhaps what their $30 can do. Um, because that's where it comes from. Somebody gives 10, 15. I mean, you can give $2,800 as the maximum, but that's not what draw, you know, driving a campaign is those, is all level of financial giving. And I think, you know, how you spend your money is a, um, it's an expression of your moral values. I know somebody said to me and gave me a big check, gave me the, the maximum. He said, I don't know if I'm going to vote for you, but your campaign should exist. Hmm. And I appreciate that. Thank you for your time today. Thank you yes. so much for having me on. Oh, my gosh. Real quick. Most important question. <clears throat> Please tell our listeners your favorite cookie that you can eat. A what? The favorite, favorite cookie. cookie that you can the eat. The cliffhanger. Chocolate chip. There we go. Fresh baked the when they're still a little I'm hot. You have my vote. only to the oatmeal raisin. <laughs> Friends was Marianne Williamson. Yeah. So I think she gave you a lot of information to think about whether she's someone that is saying the kinds of things and has and might have the kind of policies that we need going forward. And so. we just wanted to add as we were talking in between recording that we think mindfulness should be for everyone. We just want to make sure when we were talking about that in our first segment, it's not that we don't think everyone wants to be mindful. We just don't know if everyone is fully there yet. Or just even the change of language. Yeah. Like even if you say like introspection, people associate one thing with it, whereas mindful is like this whole business and commodifying and this whole wellness world that Gwyneth Paltrow has started versus like introspection. It just It's just a simple <laughs> language choice that I think could help highlight for people something very different than what might pop into their mind. If I said I'm so goop, how would you interpret that? G-O-O-P. I'm so G-O-O-P. I'm so goop. Is that like G-O-P, like a Republican? That's the 2019 <laughs> way of saying I'm woke. I am so goop. But it also sounds like you're Republican. But you might be. And if you are Republican, I'm not that's gop. fine. I'm not gop, I'm you're goop. goop. It's a different pronunciation. Okay, it's goop, not gop. Well, congratulations on inventing yoga. Happy 2019. Oh, cool. Slam! You actually probably only a fraction of our listeners got, got that, that one. That news reference to Cookies. Let's wrap up the show. It's already been long enough. So, look, if you don't want us to sell our souls and you like listening to an ad-free podcast like we like talking ad-free, the best way you can support that before we do have to sell our souls would be to join us on Patreon. And it's patreon.com forward slash free cookies. You can donate $1 a month, 5 onward and upward. But this is how we keep it real and keep it us. So that would mean the world to us if you would like to contribute. And also, if you could please leave a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, that would help others find the program and also help us in the algorithms that rule the world. And if you are on Peloton, you can follow Kate at kfagan3. And I love Allie Love. She's my favorite instructor on Peloton. I, tr I don't ride live that often, but when I do, if she calls out kfagan3 riding in Charleston, South Carolina, you'll know that's me. And if Allie Love is listening to this, I love you, Allie Love. And you can follow us on Instagram at Free Cookies Podcast. 
peace and love. And I love Cody because he calls me boo. But you know who I really love? My rolfer because he told me to stop spinning because my <laughs> knee is a pile of crap. All right. Thanks, y'all. It's going to be an awesome season three. Bye.